Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from verses uh, 23 through the end of the chapter, Matthew 21, verses uh, 23 to 46. Uh, while you're turning there, I will mention yesterday I had the opportunity to speak a couple of times at the Navigators Retreat to the Navigators from Millersville University. We're at Refreshing Mountain for the weekend. Um, over 80 students were there uh, under the leadership of John Birkenbein and his team. Um, our congregation invests well when we invest in those who are working over at Millersville University, uh, FCA and Navigators, and uh, it was a great privilege for me to be there. Um, I had thought several times during the week, as I often do when I'm sitting in my office and studying, I am grateful for the congregation's charge to me and the freedom that you give me to study the Bible and to teach it. It is, uh, I am grateful to you for your great generosity. Uh, I have an awesome office to work in and a lot of very thick books to read, and I am thankful to you for your um, uh, faithfulness and your generosity that gives me the freedom to fulfill the charge uh, in that way. So I am thankful. Speaking of uh, being grateful this morning, uh, Friday was Pastor Scott's 11th anniversary at Grace. So we're thankful to him, for, uh, to God for his 11 years of ministry uh, in our congregation. Now let's, oh yeah, there we go. Smattering of applause. Yes. All right, Scripture, Matthew 21, verse 23. You follow along as I read. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, and by implication his whole ministry, John the Baptist, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They huddled. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin... We're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John is a prophet. So they answered Jesus, uh, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. 
When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Today, I have the great privilege of speaking to you about the Lord's marvelous work. That's what he says in verse 42, doesn't it? He said, the Lord has done this. And by this, he's speaking about all the events that are in this section and that are in these chapters. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous. I have marvelous things to tell you today. Listen, marvelous things. Who wouldn't want to share marvelous news and speak about marvelous things? Who wouldn't want to be the doctor who gets to go into the recovery room to say to the patient uh, waking up from anesthesia in the bed, we got the whole tumor out. I wasn't sure we were going to, but we got the whole thing out and we did some testing and it's not cancerous. You're going to be fine. Who wouldn't want to deliver that news? Marvelous news. Who wouldn't want to be the parent who carries on Christmas morning that jiggling box and sets it in front of their children and opens the lid and out pops a puppy? Oh, marvelous. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, you grouches in the room. You're thinking to yourself, not me. I'm not going to be that parent. I don't want to be that parent. But you know, don't you know, you know that, that when your children, their faces light up, you know it's almost worth having a puppy for, that, for those faces. Almost. Marvelous, marvelous news. Who wouldn't want to be the announcer in the press box at the stadium when there's three seconds left on the clock and the Baltimore Ravens are down by one point to the Detroit Lions? And when Justin Tucker gets up to kick the field goal, and if he does it successfully, it will be the longest field goal in NFL history. Who wouldn't want to be the announcer in the box that says... Tucker's kick is on the way. It's good. It bounces off the crossbar and it topples through. It is good. Time has expired. Justin Tucker with the longest field goal in NFL history. The hay is in the barn and there's mayhem on the field. Who wouldn't want to do that? 
I mean, I can think of several thousand people in Detroit who wouldn't want to do that, but who wouldn't want to do that, right? Marvelous, marvelous news. At the same time, we have to reckon, oh, brothers and sisters, we have to reckon with the warning that is in this passage. This warning, in fact, that dominates this passage. There's marvelous work of the Lord, but there are uh, people, the main characters besides the Lord Jesus in this passage, these chief priests, these elders, who don't think it's good news. This passage functions on on a number of different levels. Uh, On the one hand, we believe the Gospels are history. They tell us what happens, the facts of what happened almost 2,000 years ago in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, But they're also narratives. They're they're stories, well-told history, and we're approaching the climax of of the book. And as, as we get to the climax, the conflict between Jesus and his opponents rises. It heats up. That's one level at which this, these, uh, these accounts function. They also function be, uh, in answering a, a very important apologetic question. We talked about this a long time ago when we first started Matthew. Matthew was very concerned about one of the questions that the early Christians would be asked. And that question was, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, why are there so many Gentiles who are his followers? And why are there not more Jewish followers of Jesus? And Matthew was concerned about that. He, he quoted, I think, from Psalm 118 here. He says that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. That's why there's not as many Jewish followers of Jesus as there are Gentiles. And, and Matthew goes into great detail here in these chapters to describe the rejection of the people Um, that it happened, why it happened, how it happened. This is such a significant turn in the Bible that Matthew goes into great detail to describe. I mean, just think about it. We have the entire Hebrew scriptures. The Old Testament is dedicated to God's dealing with the people that he chose, the Jewish people, the Israelites. And now here in the New Testament, here we are, the vast majority of us Gentile believers. What happened to the promises that God made to those people? Are they null and void? What what happened to those promises? And what happened to those people that we read about and study so much in the Hebrew scriptures? Is God faithful to the promises he made to them? Now, there's a third level at which this this passage functions. They do reject Jesus. And and to, uh, to that fact, we must ask the question, why? Why did they reject Jesus? And what we see in this passage is these religious leaders coming up against some of the same realities that we face as followers of Jesus today. If you're on the road with Jesus, if you're on the Calvary road with Jesus, like he called, if you're taking up your cross and you're following him, there's going to be seasons in your life of greater pressure, and you're going to have to answer some of these same questions that these chief priests and elders failed to answer well. So there's this warning here in this passage for us. What I want to do in the three basic sections that we read is I want to point out to you three of the themes that will press in on us as we follow Jesus that we see in the text. The first of those three themes is authority, authority. 
Now, if you've been in the adult Sunday school class in the last few months, you know that I have talked about authority an awful lot. And that's the question that the, the elders and the chief priests come to Jesus to ask. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Remember, authority is really important to Matthew. Matthew ends, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And all the way through the book, there's these um, mentions and, and uh, crediting to Jesus of great authority. And, and think about these Jews who are asking this question. They live in a world that is ruled, a nation that is ruled by foreigners. The Romans have come and their authority comes in the end of a spear and the Jews did not like their Roman overlords. Jesus, you don't have a sword, you don't have a spear, you don't have military might and you don't have credentials. Every good rabbi has got to have credentials. You don't have good credentials. So what gives you the right to do what you're doing? And I think the chief priests and the elders thought that this was a trap question for Jesus, a trick question, because they're hoping he'll say something that will get him either in trouble with Pilate, the Roman governor, or in trouble with the people. And what's Jesus going to say? I have my authority from God. Then we can stone him for blasphemy. He doesn't get his authority from the temple. We represent the temple, and trust me, he does not come on our behalf, the chief priests are thinking. Maybe they can get him to say something that will get him into trouble. They don't reckon, they don't figure uh, uh, that Jesus is going to ask them the question he does. I'll ask you one question, verse 24 says. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Uh-oh. This is not the trajectory they had in mind. This is a question that's going to go to their credibility. It's related to Jesus' own authority because John testified to Jesus, if John's from heaven, what does that say about Jesus? So it's not an unrelated question, and they talk to themselves. I don't know how they did it. Jesus is standing there, and they turn around, just a minute, Jesus, we'll be with you in just a second. Then they talk. If we say from heaven, if we say from heaven, Jesus is going to ask us why we didn't follow John. But if we say he's human, the people, at least they're honest, right, with themselves, we're afraid of the people. For they all hold that John was a prophet. Now, do you know what's missing from their little consultation here? Any question of the truth. Any question about whether John comes from heaven or earth at all. That is not what they're concerned about. Their concern is they want to stick it to Jesus and save face before the crowd. So they turn to Jesus and they say, I wonder about this. How? They say, we don't know, but the, you want to you look cool when you say it. So, and authoritative, how do you say that and look competent? We don't know. We, we don't know. They're not, they're not, we don't know. I mean, they're not doing that. How, how do they answer this with any sort of credibility? Because when they answer the question, clearly they've been outsmarted by Jesus. And they're incompetent. What kind of priests are you if there's a guy who claims to be a prophet like John and you don't know anything about him? You don't know where he comes from. What kind of a priest are you? We don't know. And Jesus says, to paraphrase, 
I don't talk to people like you. You don't really want to know the answer to the question. I'm not going to talk to you about it. There's a little bit of me that kind of feels sorry for them. They remind me a little bit here of Wiley E. Coyote. Remember Wiley E. Coyote? Wiley Coyote was ever on the hunt for Roadrunner. He wanted dinner, and he was ever hunting this bird. And he got all kinds of tools and all kinds of equipment, all kinds of plans. And it didn't matter what plan Wiley Coyote had, he always ended up falling into the valley, smashing into a wall, getting run over by a truck, blowing himself up. It never worked, and that poor, that 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 bird would just go meep, meep, and run away, and that was it. Poor Wiley Coyote. This, this encounter reminds us that Jesus' authority is unavoidable. It's, it's unavoidable. And there are two temptations that you will face in your life regarding his authority. You will be tempted to think, on the one hand, that your reputation matters more than Jesus' authority, that your standing in your group is more important than his commands. You will be also tempted to think that you can outsmart Jesus. That's actually a theme in this whole passage. We're going to see when we get into chapter 22, they bring these questions to him over and over again, and Jesus at every turn outsmarts them. They look foolish and incompetent and petty. They apparently got their questions that they asked Jesus from the Acme book of brain busters. They just don't work. None of the questions work. They're trying... You can't outsmart Jesus. Whatever Jesus commands you to do, he does not command you to do it because he's ignorant or because he's incompetent or because he doesn't know what he's doing. As followers of Jesus, in submission to his authority, we ask ourselves, through every phase of life that we go, you're you're changing stages What does submission to the authority of Jesus look like now? What does authority to uh, to the what does submission to the authority of Jesus look like in high school? What does submission to the authority of Jesus look like when you're a young parent? When you're an empty nester? What does submission to the authority of Jesus look like when you're retired? Actually, that'd be a good question for you to ask on a daily basis, wouldn't it? When you wake up in the morning, what does Jesus demand of me today? Think about this. Every day you get on the school bus, what does Jesus demand of a sixth grader at Hans Herr Elementary School? Or you walk into your homeschool co-op classroom, PA history, there you are. What does Jesus demand of you? What does Jesus demand of you at soccer practice on Tuesday night? Imagine for a minute, it's not your mom who drops you off, but it's Jesus who drops you off. What does Jesus say when you get out of the car? He says, I love you. Remember that I love you. And I'll be with you through everything that happens in practice. But remember, and what does he want you to remember? What does he demand of you when you go to soccer practice? I wonder if you thought about that. It'd be a great question. It would be a great question for you to talk about with maybe there's somebody else on your team who's a follower of Jesus too and talking to them, what what do you think Jesus wants us to do at soccer practice? What does Jesus 
demand of a mom with three kids under five in her house. The good news is Jesus demands less than Pinterest and Instagram. That's good news. What does Jesus demand of plumbers? Do you know what Jesus demands of plumbers? If, if you're a plumber, I hope you should think about it. What does Jesus want you to do tomorrow? What does submission to the authority of Jesus look like? That's the first theme in this passage. And that's actually, it's a theme that dominates because um, Jesus is now going to turn and he's going to tell three parables in a row. We only read two of them. We'll talk about the third one, Lord willing, next week. But he tells two parables, three parables in a row, all about how this authority works itself out. His authority works itself out. And we come to the second theme, namely obedience, obedience. Jesus tells a parable. A man has two sons. Now, it's, that sounds familiar. Where have we heard this story before? Uh, there was a man who had two sons. Well, that was a different story at a different time. Jesus, uh, the, 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 Jesus says that the, the man went to the first son and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. And he says, no. He changes his mind and goes. Wrong words, right action. Then he goes to the second son and he says, son, go and work in my vineyard. Yes, I will. Of course I will. The little Eddie Haskell of this parable. Oh, yes. And then he doesn't go. Right words, wrong action. And then Jesus, because he's a good teacher, asks the question, their response is right, and I guarantee you they don't like the implications of the question. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Well, the first one did, because he actually went into the field. And then Jesus, this must have stung. He says, Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of, heaven, of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes, they don't deserve, they don't belong at the, the beginning of any parade in this culture. They're outcasts. They don't belong in polite society. What do you mean that they have first-class tickets to the kingdom of God? How can that possibly be? And Jesus says, well, at first, they said no to God. But under John's preaching, they turned and believed, and their lives changed. You, on the other hand, have always said yes to God, you priests and elders. You have always said yes to God, but, but you've never actually obeyed what he said, even though, even though you saw the changes in the lives of the prostitutes and tax collectors. Huh. This is a reminder to us that a profession of faith, using the right words, a profession of faith that does not change how you live is of no value. I'll say that again. A profession of faith that does not change how you live is of no value. Now, we have to be careful here because we have woven within our hearts this tendency to believe that our standing with God 
what matters really for our standing with God is our performance, the things that we do. We have to earn our good standing with God. This is woven into our hearts, and it's a basic belief of most people in the world, regardless of the religion in which they find themselves. If you want to make yourself pleasing to Allah, you must fulfill the five pillars of Islam. If you want to be reincarnated in the next life, in a better life, if you want to have a better life in the next one, you need to build up some good karma by being a good person now. And then in the next life, you'll have a, a better, better existence. And even if you ask most people who identify as Christians and say, uh, uh, they'll tell you that the way to be a good Christian is to be a good person because that's what God count matters. That's what matters to God, being a good person. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. And the problem with that view that your standing with God is based on your performance is it radically underestimates the damage that sin does and it underestimates the holiness of God. It elevates us and brings God down. Uh, the Titanic was the um, uh, most famous shipwreck, I think, in all the world. It, it sunk on... April 15th, 1912. They looked for it in the North Atlantic for a long time, and they finally found it on September 1st, 1985. It was a U.S. Navy expedition. Uh, there were French, uh, uh, French companies and American companies in this expedition that found the Titanic. And they took at the bottom of the sea uh, hundreds and hundreds of pictures of the Titanic, and they put them all together, and here is this composite picture of a portion of the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean. I want you to imagine that I came to you and I said, hey, I've got a great business idea. You might want to invest in this. I'm going to go to the North Atlantic and I'm going to pull the Titanic back up. I'm going to clean the carpets and I'm going to sand and polish all the wood and I'm going to uh, polish all the metal and I'm going to paint it again and I'm going to start selling tickets on the Titanic. I'm going to get that boat and put it in the water. Would you like to invest in my business? <laughs> no. No, no, no. Don't you know? I mean, come on, think about this. There's, first of all, the iceberg damage. Okay, there's that. Then the fact that the thing split in two when it was going down. It's been in the bottom of the ocean for a hundred years. There are no carpets to clean anymore. There's no more wood. Any metal that's left in it is, is not worth much. That It would take a miracle to make that shipwreck seaworthy. And then I say, aha. Because when the Bible talks to us about our condition before God, it doesn't use shipwreck language. It says we are dead, dead in our sin. It would take a miracle to make someone whose life has been as damaged by sin as mine has and as yours had. It would take a miracle to make you God-worthy. Fortunately, the good news, <laughs> marvelous work in just a few days from this conversation that Jesus has with the chief priest, God's going to bring that miracle about. On the cross, when he dies for us, the Lord Jesus God is going to do what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. He's going to take all of your sin and he's going to assign it to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is going to suffer the terrible consequences of sin. And 
He's going to take Christ's righteousness and give it to you. That great exchange becomes a reality in your life by faith, by believing. Notice this emphasis on believing that Jesus has in this passage. Verse 32, John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So by faith, this great exchange takes place and you're made right with God. But that faith works itself out in a new sort of life. Not an easy life, but a, a different life. I had a friend uh, in college, and he was um, not feeling too well for a few days. Probably he'd been not feeling well for longer than that. But finally, on Friday of one week, he went to the emergency room because he just felt so bad. And they did all these tests on him. They found out what was wrong very quickly. He was diabetic. Didn't know that. The diabetes had now manifested itself. He left campus on Friday, and he came back to campus on Sunday, an insulin-dependent diabetic. And now his life experience in the cafeteria was radically different than it was just a few days before, because now he knows all those things in the cafeteria, many of them, they're, they're dangerous. That ice cream, the cupcakes, the cake, the cookies, all that fruit, that white bread. It's dangerous. You've got to be careful with that stuff. It will hurt you. It, it will uh, potentially affect your vision and, and your circulation, and it, it, it will kill you. I go to my friend, and I say, do you believe that you have diabetes? It will show up in your diet. Do you believe that sin does what Jesus says sin does? And have you turned to him for forgiveness and life? It will show up in what you do. There's a difference between mere profession of faith and the working out of that faith. That leads to parable number three, parable number two, actually, but theme number three, accountability, accountability. Jesus tells another parable. It's a parable about a vineyard, a landowner who owned a vineyard. uh, Isaiah the prophet spoke this way sometimes. In Isaiah chapter 5, he used a similar analogy. And this this parable is is not hard to see, uh, understand. God is the landowner. He has made, created the nation of Israel and the people of Israel. He's done all this work to establish it. The vineyard is Israel itself. And the tenant farmers are the priests, these leaders that he left in charge. And at the end of harvest time, he goes and collects his fruit. Now, a vineyard in Israel, it would take four or five years in order to get uh, wine-worthy grapes, like grape-juice-worthy grapes. It would take four or five years to get to that point. But um, every year, you would have to go and collect some fruit because there was a law, a practice, that if the landowner didn't collect fruit uh, every year or at least once every three years, then the land would be considered abandoned by him and the tenant farmers could take possession of it. They could argue hey, he's not taking any of the profits. We're doing all the work. We should have the land. That that would be a case you could make in court. So at the end of year one, he sends his servants to collect his fruit. And the the farmers, well, let's read verses 35 to 37 and see see if that makes sense. Is this good business practice? Some of you own land that you rent out. Is this how you would respond? 
Verse 35, the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. I think I'd stop there, right? Verse 36, then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. This is not how a normal landowner would operate. But this parable reminds us of the patience and the love of God, the patience that he has had with his people and that he sends prophets over and over and over and over again. And their, their response gets no better. And finally, this landowner sends his son, my son. They'll listen to my son. He's the best representation of me. He is, he is the closest representative that I have. I will send my son. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I'll send my son. And what do they do? They kill him. They sound very much in, in verses 38 and 39 like Joseph's brothers, don't they? Joseph comes with his many coat, his colored coat, and he comes to find his brothers, and they say, come, let's kill him. Here's the favorite of the family. Let's kill him. Uh. Jesus asked the question. He's a good teacher. What will the landowner do to the tenants? And they answer the question, and they condemn themselves. He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. This passage reminds me a little bit of, of what um, the chronicler wrote in 2 Chronicles 36. Look at 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them, his people Israel, through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. And here's the warning. There's warning Verse 42 is a very important passage to the church. Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Now, we don't know cornerstone. Our translations, it's difficult. Is this the cornerstone, the foundation, or is this the capstone, the most important building at the top? We're not sure which it is, one of the two. But it's the stone that the builders rejected. This is what the Lord has done, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here it is, this plan. This is God's plan. Through this terrible act of injustice, when, when the, the Jewish leaders rejected God's son, God uses that rejection, and he saves sinners. That rejection turned the world upside down because the crucified son is now exalted on high. It's marvelous. This is, I think, where uh, uh, the uh, apostles learned how to pray this way. Look in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. The apostles are praying, and they said to God, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This is the Lord's work. It's marvelous. There's consequences. 
Either Jesus will be your cornerstone or he will crush you. Verse 44, anyone who falls on this stone will be shattered, will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The consequences even get worse in verse 43. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, we have expected something like this because Jesus had started to talk about the church back in Matthew chapter 16. And from here on out for the foreseeable future, the church is going to be the center of where God is at work. Now, one of the questions that comes from verse 43 is, does God have any foreseeable plan in the future for his people Israel? And Christians disagree about this. I'm of the opinion that they do. Romans 11 suggests that God has plans for the Jewish people in the future. And then look at Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, 43 to 45. They, that is the Jewish people, will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. We'll talk about this more in the future, but I I am of the uh, uh, belief that God still has a plan for Israel in the future, though at this point in time, this, this nation is no longer going to be the locus of God's work. Then verse 45, the warning is sharp. Notice what it says. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They knew it. They knew that he was talking about them. They're not acting out of ignorance. They are fully aware of what's going on. Think about all this evidence that they have that Jesus is who he claims to be. He outsmarts them at every turn. He performs miracles. He uh, they, they heard the preaching of John and they saw how the preaching of John changed the lives of prostitutes and tax collectors. They have the story of the Old Testament, which is told to us in parabolic form here in this parable of the tenants. They have the prophecy of Psalm 118 that we just read. They have these very parables that are a warning to them. Jesus told this parable to them and they heard it and they knew it was about them and they said, No. Bertrand Russell was an atheist in the 20th century, quite well-known one, and he was asked, Bertrand Russell, if you stand before God, if if you're wrong about God not existing and you stand before God, what are you going to say to him? And Bertrand Russell rather famously said, I will look at God and tell him that he did not give me enough evidence to believe in him. Hogwash. Heed this warning in this passage. Some of you need to listen to this this morning because you're sitting in, the, in those chairs and you're 15 years old and you're growing in your independence as a human being. In the next five years, your life is going to change dramatically as you move closer and closer to independence from your parents. And the question that you will have to answer as you move through that phase and, and when no one's making you get up and go to church, you will have to answer that question. What will I do with Jesus. 
and you will be tempted to believe, and all around you, you'll hear this, this message, you will be tempted to believe that Jesus doesn't matter, that you can manage your life better yourself, that you'll be happier without him. That message will come. You won't have to look hard. It will hunt you down and echo in your ears. And you will be tempted to walk away despite the pleas of your parents and despite the admonitions of your leaders in Pyro and despite the testimony of your grandparents. And if you walk away, you are putting yourself in great peril. And on the day of judgment, when you stand before the same Lord who has spoken these parables, you will not be there in ignorance because I am warning you today. I am warning you. I am pleading with you. You must not walk away from him. Either Jesus will be the cornerstone of your life or he will crush you. So listen, listen to this warning in this passage. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful that you tell us the truth. You tell us the truth about the Lord Jesus who is our marvelous Savior and our coming judge. Lord, we come before you this morning with grief because we know there are men and women who have grown up in this church who have heard sermons like this and have walked away and they are in great peril and it's grievous to us. Far be it for us to think that it's only teenagers who have this problem. (laughs) Some of us are in middle age and we're hearing those songs that... Jesus is not worth it, and, and it's too hard to follow him, and it's too, too wearying. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us in our congregation, that we might be faithful to watch over one another and call one another to increasing fidelity to the Lord Jesus. Save us. Have mercy on us. Oh, Lord, we pray. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, together saying, amen.